Great to see you. Are you recovering from community service day? That was rigorous yesterday. Great job. Thank you for all your work and for participating. I'm Greg Paris, one of the guys here. Welcome to Union Chapel. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit during these weeks, uh, and we are doing so uh, during the season on the Christian calendar, which are the weeks between Easter and Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is next weekend, and what we know to be true about the disciples and the life of Jesus is that he was raised from the dead early on Sunday morning, and then he appeared to people in his resurrected state over a period of 40 days. Hundreds of people saw Jesus after the resurrection, and for 40 days he was with, with his disciples off and on. On day 40 or so, he was, he was ascended to heaven, and this ascension was the last time that the disciples were with Jesus in any physical sense, and then they waited 10 days to Pentecost. Penta means five, Pentecost 50. Uh, we have a five-sided building in Washington, D.C. Our armed forces are housed there. We call it the Pentagon, so it's five sides, and Pentecost is 50, so from Resurrection, Passover, to Pentecost, and the Jewish calendar is 50 days. Jesus appeared for 40 days, ascended to heaven, and then 10 days were, were the 120 men and women waiting in the upper room, and then the day of Pentecost came. And so with that timeline in mind, we want to pick up the story either on the first Sunday or second or subsequent su Sundays, but we find Jesus now appearing to his disciples on a Sunday, which I kind of believe that it was actually resurrection day. So he rose from the dead on Sunday morning, and now he's appearing to his disciples later in the day. And we pick up the story there in John chapter 20, and I'm going to read for us verses 19 to 22, and then one page over, if you will, to Acts chapter 1 and the first five verses there. And we'll pick up our context in the story along those lines. Today I want to talk about the spirit of anticipation spirit of expectation, anticipating that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to do something in our lives, and we should live with that sense of anticipation. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project the words. Our custom is to stand to hear God's Word, so if you're able, thank you for doing that. And here's John's perspective on these events. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, again, this is Sunday, first day of the week, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now flip over one page to Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, and after he, his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And again, this is a 40-day period. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, 
he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, this is John Baptist, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now may God inspire and instruct us today through this important story. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now this is the first Sunday. Sabbath is over. And they will never celebrate the Sabbath the same way again because now things have changed. But try to put yourself in the emotional state that these disciples must have been in. They have this deep sense of grief, sense of loss. There is this confusion and pain. Their, their master, their teacher, their rabbi, Jesus, he's been crucified. There's some rumor that he's been raised from the dead, but they haven't seen him. And so they are, they are huddled together in this room. And there are personal issues. Simon Peter has denied him just a few days earlier. Judas Iscariot has betrayed him. Now Judas is dead. He has committed suicide. Now there are only 11 of them. And they are there with their thoughts. And they probably looking at each other wondering what to do. Should we pray? Should we sing? Or should we just disband and go home? Party's over. So there they are in this, in this emotional state, wrought with confusion at every level. And then suddenly, with no earthly warning, there was no text that came in saying, hey, Jesus is about to show up. There's no, there's, there's no indication. There is no, there's no earthly idea that Jesus is going to show up. And suddenly, Jesus is, is in the midst of them. This, is not, this isn't an aberration, this is not a, this is not a cloud, this is not a ghost, this is, this is not a, a, a well-wishing moment. Jesus is physically, tangibly, in his resurrected form, present in the room. Hey. <laughs> exactly. So... Yeah, I was going to say, what's the chance the timing's going to be good the rest of the way? Probably not. So, <laughs> so, so here we are in this moment with, with Jesus resurrected. He's glorified. He's resplendent. And he is, he is there. Now, these guys don't know what to do. Try to imagine being there. They don't know whether to run to him and embrace him and hug him or to run from him. My, you know, dive under the table, not knowing what to do. And this is what Jesus says. Now watch it. Watch it now. Here's, here's the take home. This is what he says. Peace be with you. I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet. I have no way of knowing what's going to happen next. But if I have any discernment or any perception about the world in which we live and the next generation that is coming to this world, this is my prediction. The next generations of people who will live on this planet will not experience a great deal of peace. It's a crazy world. Much upheaval. And while I don't know what wars are going to be fought, what nations will rise or fall, what cities might fall into the sea, I don't know any of that. I don't know what, 
heartache or tragedy or suffering or particular disappointment you will experience in your personal life or family or business. I don't know any of that, but I have learned a couple of things walking with God for about 50 years. And these two things seem to be certain. These two things seem to be ever-present. One is Christ present in my life. And number two, the peace of God that passes understanding. You can write that down. It's the first point on your outline. Christ's presence is predictable and reliable, and his peace is always with us. The most uh, amazing story I've heard about this kind of benefit that God gifts us with comes from the life of a friend of mine named Kim Kaling. Kim and her husband and two small children were missionaries to Africa, Sierra Leone, just some years ago, when Sierra Leone experienced civil war. And Kim and her family and two or three other missionary families lived in a compound, a missionary compound, if you will, in Sierra Leone, ministering to the people there. And terrorists, in the middle of the night, broke into their camp. These men were horrible. They were, they were, they were brutal, evil, drunken, and no doubt demonized human beings. Broke into this camp and bust burst into Kim's home. They dragged her husband out into the front yard and were beating him. Kim's two small children, they're only three and four years old at the time, were dragged into an adjacent room where they were screaming and crying, terrorized by the moment. Kim, unaware at this point that her best friend who lived right next door in the compound was already dead. She had been killed instantly when one of these terrorists hit her in the back of the head with a ball-peen hammer. And there she lay dead. Kim was forked to her knees and the barrel of a rifle was placed aggressively in the back of her head. Now, it's hard for us to get our minds around this kind of moment. This actually happened and you probably surmise that Kim and her family survived this event because I later heard the account of this event from Kim herself. But in that moment, it's hard for us to imagine the insanity, the, the chaos, the screaming, the gunfire, the yelling. All of this insanity is all around her. And she reported to me that in that moment, as she knelt there on the ground with that gun in the back of her head, and she knew that she could be launched into eternity in any moment, she said she closed her eyes and she prayed. And she said, I prayed loud enough that I could hear myself pray over the noise, over the chaos, the insanity. And she said, I prayed loud. And she said, Jesus, are you here? And she said, in the next moment, in a voice loud enough that she could hear it over all of this, over this chaos, she heard the words, yes, I am here. And she said, not only did I hear the voice of Jesus in that moment, but I immediately experienced his peace. Friends, it doesn't matter who you are, what you're going through, what the level of crisis, chaos, turmoil, tragedy may be in your life and your world. There are two things you can count on. Christ present in your life and his abiding peace. That's where the amen goes in the sermon. That's good. And we... And we can be assured 
that he's with us and he'll never leave us. And it's a great promise. And that's the promise that Jesus gave to those disciples of his on a day that must have been a low point in their lives. Now here's the second thing I want to draw from our text today, and it's simply this, as we consider a spirit of anticipation. And number two on your outline, the promise of the Holy Spirit is given. The promise of the Spirit is given. Our text in Acts 1 verse 4 today says that Jesus reminded these guys, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And so we, we hear Jesus reminding them that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out. John 16, verse 7, let me put this on the screen for you. Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Indeed, Jesus had taught them that it was better that he go away so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. He said, it's good that I'm with you. And they got that. I mean, if you had asked the disciples when Jesus was alive, is it good to be around Jesus? They would say, it's really nice to hang out with Jesus. This is really an adventure. I mean, think about the teaching that they had received from Jesus and the miracles. Uh, you know, he was controlling nature. Uh, it was an amazing phenomenon. I mean, he quieted storms and walked on water and multiplied food. I mean, he's healing people who are sick. People who are demonized are being liberated. He's even resuscitating dead people. One guy, Lazarus, had been dead four days. And he resuscitates him and he comes you know, staggering out of, out, of, out of the tomb. Amazing. He stops a funeral procession one day. A widow has lost her only son, and, and she's beyond grief. Jesus stops the procession, takes the boy by the hand, and he resuscitates. He gives, he gives her back to, to his mother, and it made her really happy to have her son back. This is a remarkable, remarkable experience living with Jesus. But Jesus now says to them, look, I'm going to go away. I'm going to leave you physically, but it's better that I go. It's better that I leave because then I can send the Holy Spirit who is going to be your comforter, your helper, your, your guide, your instructor, your teacher, the one who empowers you. I live on the outside of you now, but I'm going to be living on the inside of you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can fantasize about having Jesus on the outside of us. I mean, what if... What if Jesus lived like in your house, in your spare bedroom, and he lives with you? That, there would be some advantage to that, right? I mean, you sit down and watch the nightly news, you know, you eat dinner and you're watching the news. You could turn on some cable network, you know, watch it, and then you just turn to Jesus and say, what's really going on? He said, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> that would be helpful, wouldn't it? It'd be nice. I mean, you're tucking your kids in the bed, and Jesus said, could I tell them a good night story? Sure, come on in. And suddenly your children, you know, become little saints. Amazing. Because Jesus told a story. You know, at the end of the month, you're out of money. No problem. He just makes some. That's very cool. You go, to the, you go to the gas station to fill up your car. Jesus is with you. He doesn't have a license. So you're driving him around town. And, and you pull up to the pump. You swipe your card. And you start pumping gas. And the gas is going in. But you look at the the monetary part of the, <laughs> of the display, and you realize that it's not taking from your card, it's adding to your card. It's going in reverse, and it's crediting back to your card as you're pumping your car full of gas. That would be pretty cool. 
So it would be an advantage to have Jesus on the outside of you. But Jesus said, look, it's okay when I'm on the outside of you, but it's actually better if I'm on the inside of you because then I can affect your heart and your thoughts and your motives and your emotions. I can, I can be even more personal in my relationship with you. And this is what we've learned about the Holy Spirit. He's, he's, he's our helper. He's our friend. He's not weird. He's our God. And he is a person. And you can know him personally and develop a relationship with him. Jesus said, it's better if I go away. It's better because of that. John 20, verse 22, it says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so this was, this was a precursor of what was to come in just a matter of days when, the, when Pentecost occurred and the Holy Spirit was poured out on everybody. And so he was reminding them of the importance of this. Here's my concern. When Jesus said to them, go to Jerusalem and wait, he didn't give them a timeline on that. No timeline. He said, just go and wait. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. Don't try to fulfill the, the commission. Don't, don't, don't engage the master plan. Don't do anything I've asked you to do until you receive the Holy Spirit. So go to Jerusalem and wait until you receive what has been promised to you. Now, there's no timeline on that. Now, we know historically that this was day 40 when he said this to the disciples, and we, knew, we know that there were 10 days until Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but the disciples didn't know they were, had 10 days to wait. They didn't know. And so one of the concerns I have about this statement of creating expectation and, and anticipation is that in today's modern world, we live in a world of instant gratification. I'm not sure modern American Christians could pray about anything for 10 days in a row. I'm concerned about that. We live in a world where everything is given to us very quickly. I mean, we have the drive-up window, and now we have Internet technology, and now we can get just about anything we want with a click of a button. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, we have Amazon Prime right now. How many of you have Amazon Prime? I'm just curious. Raise your hand. If you don't know what Amazon Prime is, ask the people who have their hand up. You'll have it before this time tomorrow. You know, with the click of a button, this is coming, you'll, you'll be able to get your groceries delivered to your house. If you just need a gallon of milk, it will be at your house in a few years from now, maybe not that long, a gallon of milk will arrive on your front porch within 30 minutes of you clicking your smartphone, and it will be delivered by an unmanned drone. It'll just set a gallon of milk right down on your, on your porch. Yeah. There, and not very many years from now, you will own a car, and you will get behind the wheel of your car, but you won't actually drive your car car will drive itself you just tell your car where you want to go and it will take you there our grandchildren if, if you're say 50 years old or older in this room when your grandchildren are your age they will sit around and they will talk to each other and say can you believe that cars used to run into each other <laughs> that there were people who actually would get hurt driving a car can you and they would get, they'll giggle at that because by the time they're driving cars will not run into each other Artificial intelligence apparently will be better than human intelligence when it comes to driving. These, this, is an amazing, this is an amazing world. So we're a culture absolutely infatuated by consumerism. We are a high-demand, high-expectation culture. We expect every store to be perfect when we go into it, every car run without flaw, every service to be provided with timeliness and excellence, all of which catering to our needs, our desires, our demand for immediacy. 
We want it. We want it now. We want it the way we want it. And we won't accept any variations. And all of this has been imposed on our cultural expectations. Are you following me? Therefore, a delay of any sort is quickly interpreted by us as a monstrous imposition on our lives. We're just not used to that. But where this phenomenon does its greatest damage is in regard to spiritual things. Because as it turns out, our spiritual journey, our spiritual maturity, the process that we make in our spiritual life, the steps we take, are all important. There's no skipping any steps in the economy of God for our lives. He expects us to endure each of the stages necessary to grow us into the kind of person that he desires. And so there are no shortcuts. You got to touch every, every step. You got you to do every, every stage. There's no getting around that. And so what God will do, listen to me now, because this is counterintuitive in the culture in which we live. What God will do is he will withhold the answer to our prayers sometimes and the answer to our, the longings of our hearts sometimes for the simple reason of creating pressure in our lives. God loves to create pressure. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. God intentionally sets us up so that we feel the, the, the pressure and the, and the need to understand why God isn't answering my prayers or coming through for me right now. Everything else I do, all I gotta do is click the button and it happens. But with God, it doesn't seem to work like that. What's the deal? And God will create this pressure because God loves us to wrestle with him. He loves for us to lean into him and to press into him and to develop our trust in him. He won't just hand us the answer or give us the breakthrough automatically. He will take us through a process that builds in us the character qualities that we will need to endure the next steps. One of the things that I love to do as a parent, and I love to do it now as a grandparent, is I love to wrestle with the, with the kids when they're little. And this is, you know, this is a function more of, of, of dads than it is with moms, but uh, with our boys, when they, were, when they were little guys, listen, this is what God uses to instill the fear of God in children. <laughs> they need to feel your power physically. So I, I would just grab them and put them in a headlock and hold them and they know they couldn't get away. Now, and I would say, I would posture in a threatening way. I would use words that were very uh, threatening, intimidating. I, I would look at them with the right attitude and the right tone. And I would say, I'm going to eat you. <laughs> and I would say it in such a way to convince them. I'm, when I catch you, I'm going to eat you. And then, and then they're, they're off, and they're running. They're trying to get away. And when I would catch them, then I would make them use all their strength, all the strength they have to get loose. I wouldn't just let them, I caught them, and okay, now go. No, I hang on to them until they're exerting all the strength that they have in their bodies to get loose. And then I let them loose, and I say, when I catch you again, I'm going to eat you. And, I, and, and you can hear in their voice, that they go, I wonder if he's serious. I wonder if he means that. Because in the back of their mind, they know something because they felt my strength too. They know something. They know that if I wanted to, I could eat them. <laughs> Literally. And so they're running. They're running for their lives. And then I, and then, then I finally corner them. And I always like to catch them in a corner. 
So they're there and there's no way out. There's nowhere to go. And then it's just, ah, and then you know, they just give up. And then and it's that, that moment, then you grab them and they're unsure what you're going to do with them. But you grab them and then you, hold, you pull them in close and you reassure them and you, and you remind them of your love and that you'll always be there and you'll protect them. And there's nothing that they have to, have to fear as long as I'm here. And, and this, is what, this is what builds into these children the value that they need in relationship with God. See, we have an entire culture now devoid of the virtue of the fear of God. People just doing anything, going anywhere, acting any, engaging any lifestyle, any kind of behavior they want without fear. That there's any accountability. If I could give American culture one thing, it'd be the fear of God. Just everybody sober up just a little bit. That would be wise. Everybody sober up. And let's be a little more serious about what's going to happen 100 years from now, not just what's happening right now. And so this is what God does. Maybe some of your old-time Christians in the room today, you, you know the phrase praying through. Remember that phrase? Have you prayed through on that? What does that mean? It just means, look, I'm going to pray until I get an answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persist. I'm going to engage in importunity in my prayer. I'm, I'm going to be diligent in my prayer. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to keep on praying until I get a breakthrough. Yeah, have you heard the old-timey phrase, hang on to the horns of the altar? This, this, is, this, is that, this is that Jacob prayer when he wrestled with God. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I won't let go of you, God, until you give me what I need. This is, this is the kind of engagement with God and the kind of relationship with God that God desires of all of us. So it's not instant gratification. It's the, it's the woman who's bearing a child for the first time. Now, I'm, I'm just imagining this now. I can't, how can I identify with that? But I imagine that a woman who's facing childbirth for the first time is pretty sober about the experience. It would, it, would, it would occur to that person, and all of you mothers can just give me that knowing smile, that the first time you go through that, you wonder, I don't even, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure it's even possible. How am I going to get this baby out of here? This, this is going to be hard. And so you go through that, and when, when a, when a first-time mother is in the middle of labor, an intense labor, you know, that, that's a moment when she'll look at her husband, like my wife did to me, and look at us and go, and the nonverbal is, you dirty dog, I can't believe you've done this to me. It's horrible. And a woman in the middle of that experience vows never to do this again until the baby's born. And they lay that baby on the mother's breast for the first time, and she holds that baby and looks at that baby. And then everything changes. Usually this is true. And a mom will think, you know, that wasn't so bad. This is a beautiful thing. Could probably, probably do this again sometime. And what we know about that natural process is that there's gestation and you can't skip any of the steps. And there's labor and there's delivery and you can't bypass any of that. You got to go through all of those stages in order to get to the moment when you realize this is better than I thought it was going to be. This is more wonderful than I anticipated. 
And the same is our journey with God and our relationship with him. There are steps that we have to take, and you can't skip them. And so we have to lean into them, and we have to persist and learn to trust and allow God to build into us the right stuff. And the same is true with the work of the Holy Spirit, that we should live with a sense of anticipation that God will not be satisfied with our status quo in our spiritual life, that he always has more for us. And the great danger for people who've walked with God for a while is to think, well, I've got everything of God that I need. No. No, every single one of us, you and me and all of us, alike, still have much to learn. We have many more steps to take in this journey. And we should live with that expectation, that anticipation. I just want to submit to you today, this is the point, that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of anticipation. Oh God, what are you going to do next? I bet it's going to be really neat. Not easy, but good. It's good preaching right there. I don't know what you put in the offering, but that was worth it right there. I hope you're listening. So again, my concern is that there are a few modern Christians who could really pray to those ends. And so I just want to encourage you to be patient and live with that sense of anticipation. When I was in grad school years ago, Beth and I lived in Clarksville, Indiana. We pastored a little church there just two blocks off of the Ohio River on the Indiana side there at Louisville. And, and we had about 70 people in a little church. And right across the street from where the Parsonage Church on Parsonage was in that little neighborhood was um, a family by the name of Hauber. Tim and his wife had a couple of little babies when we first moved in. And, and because they were right across the street, our front porches faced each other across the street. We got to know them. And Tim owned a little construction company, residential construction company. And we became friends. Early in the first summer that we were there, Tim invited me to play on his industrial league softball team. His company sponsored this team, and I said, that'd be great. And I play. He saw me playing in the church league and thought I might add value to his team, and so he invited me to play, and I agreed. And boy, uh, Tim, Tim's industrial league team, these boys were rough. These were some characters. They were all blue-collar. You know, some of them finished high school. A few of them didn't. They, they worked in the factory. They, uh, they liked to party. Some of them had drug problems, uh, coarse language. I loved it. I just, I just had the best time. I, I thought, this is so great. I get to hang out with these guys. And after the first game we played together, uh, after the game we went out to the parking lot. I was just following everybody because I'm on the team. I wonder what we do now. And someone lifted up this tailgate and reached into this big container of ice. And someone was always designated to buy the beer and put it on ice before the game so it would be nice and cold after the game. And so the, one of these guys was passing out the beer. And it got to me, and they were all, you know, you could feel everybody's eyes on me. They knew I was the pastor of the little Methodist church down the street. And I smiled, and I said, well, guys, listen, uh, I appreciate that. And I'm, I th- thank you for the offer. But... You know, I'm the Methodist pastor, and I'm a teetotaling Methodist. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't drink beer, but I appreciate it. Well, I might as well have said, you know, your mother's ugly or something like that <laughs> because they just worked me over. I mean, they, they were really wearing me out. And they, uh, they uh, I can't tell you what they said. So it was, 
it was pretty rough, pretty rough treatment. But I, that was okay with me because, I, see, I love that. I love that. I love the give and take. My personality, I'm, I'm wired so that, you know, if you want to challenge me about some position I have or some standard that I live by, you know, just come on. Well, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. And so I, so I had fun with them, and they pushed me, and I pushed them back. And this happened for the whole first summer. I mean, they insisted. Now, come on, you're, if you're on this team, you, and you can't, and so, I mean, it was, it was full court press. And I, I just kept resisting that. The last uh, week or so of that first summer, we were shagging flies one night before a game, taking some batting practice, and I, and I saw one of the, my teammates kind of, you know, kicking at the dirt like this and so forth, and he was inching his way over to where I was standing. And when he finally got close enough to me to hear him without anyone else hearing, he confessed to me that his life was a mess. And he was addicted to drugs. His marriage was in crisis. He was afraid he was going to lose his job. And he said to me, can you help me? And I said, yes, I can help you. And I got him in a rehab program and coached him in his marriage a little bit. Just helped him out, just privately. And that happened with three or four of the guys on the team as the next summer came around. Now, they, they were still insisting that I that I imbibe with them and party with them. Uh, and they were still pretty harsh about that, but they were starting to gain a little more respect. My neighbor, Tim, he called me, called me one day and he said, uh, Greg, you know, my family's growing. When we first moved there, he had two kids. And then by the second summer, he was on his fourth kid, expecting the fourth kid. And he had, had this little house. And he said, he said, on Saturday, what I'm going to do, he said, I'm going to tear the roof off my house and build a second store and put the roof back on before the end of the day. He said, you want to come over and help me? And I said, yeah, that sounds like an adventure. <laughs> and we had a bunch of guys. How some of those guys didn't fall off the roof, I have no idea because they were, you know, they were all drunk. And so we, we took the, and we, we, had the, we got it under roof before the end of the day. It was, it was an experience. And I, you know, just moments like that that were bonding for, for guys and I continued to build relationship. Early in the third summer, the last summer we were there, I got a call one weekday morning, and it was Tim, my neighbor, and he said, Greg, he said, maybe you heard that my dad, my dad died. And I said, I, I did hear that, Tim, I'm sorry. He said, I, I'm really embarrassed about this, but I didn't know who else to call. He said, I, I bought a suit because I didn't own a suit to wear it to my dad's funeral. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't know how to tie this tie. He said, could you come over and help me tie my tie? I said, I'll be right there. And so I stood with my friend Tim and as I tied his tie, we wept together. The end of that third summer, Beth and I were ready to move to Muncie. It's all these years ago. And Tim called me that last week that we were there, and he said, Hey, I'm having a cookout, and I want you to come. Bring Beth and your son. Isaac wasn't here yet. Bring your son over, and we're going to have a cookout. I said, okay, great, I'll be over. And I told Beth, I said, brace yourself. 
Because these, these boys, when they party, my goodness. And I, we got to Tim's backyard, and all the guys were there. Their spouses were there. Their kids were running around. And I very quickly noticed there was no alcohol. There were no drugs. Only soft drinks that night. At the end of the evening, Tim circled everybody up and he, he, he said, uh, Greg, we, we took up an offering for you. He didn't call it that. He, called, he said, we took up a collection. Now, we were all pitiful. I mean, all of us were just broke. We, just, we were just pit, pitiful poor. We lived in this little neighborhood. We, nobody had any money. And so they knew we were maybe more pitiful than any of them. And... He said, we, we took up a collection, and he had these bills all wadded up in his hand. You know, some ones were wrinkled and some fives. Anyway, it was $100. It's a lot of money. And he gave that to us. And then he handed me a softball. And he said, here's a softball. He said, we've all signed it. So this way you can remember us. And I still have the softball. I use that as a prayer list. For 30 years now, I've, I'll, it's in my office. I'll just pick it up once in a while, and I'll just spin it in my hand, and I'll pray over the names on that softball. Two years, all this time, I've, I was praying, God, please, please touch Tim Haber, my neighbor. Please help him come to Jesus. Please, please let him find you as Savior. I have to quit. We'll skip the last song. You can sing anytime. So I was just praying, God, please help, help me win Tim to Christ. And Tim was just, you know, he's just always at a little distance. Two years after we had moved, on a Monday night, the phone rang at our house here in Muncie. I picked it up. He said, he's, I, he said Greg, this is Tim Hauber. Tim, how are you doing? He said, he said, I need to tell you something. I said, go ahead. He said, two weeks ago, I was invited to attend a church. He said, you know, I've never been to church. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he said, but I decided to go. So he said, I got my family and we went to church. And the preacher there, he told us during the sermon that everybody needs to know Jesus and to receive him as their savior. That's important. He said, you know, I know you said that to me many times. But he said, when I heard it that time, he said, it just kind of sunk in. I said, well, that's great, Tim. He said, so I went back to church yesterday. Now, this was Monday night. So he said, I went back yesterday. And he said, the preacher did the same thing. Told us that we needed to know Jesus as our Savior. And he said, at the end of the service, he gave us an opportunity to pray to receive Christ. And he said, and I did. And he said, the reason I'm calling you is because I wanted you to be the first one to know what I did. And we partied on the phone. So that's so great. Now listen, here's what I want to remind you of. Whatever promise God has made, whatever God has promised to you, 
and in particular reference to the promise of the Father to give the Holy Spirit to you as a helper and a friend and a guide and a comfort and a, and a place of peace. Whatever promise God has made, God is faithful to perform. God performs his promises. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. You can rely on it. You can rest all your weight on it. You can entrust your eternity to the promises of God. And I want to encourage you today to live with that spirit of anticipation that no matter what you're going through, God's presence, God's peace will be with you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we reflect on that Sunday morning when the disciples were in despair and you appeared in the midst of them saying, peace be with you. So we are encouraged today. The Holy Spirit is on the way. And we thank you then for a renewed sense of your presence in our midst. So we pray today for more pressure. Yeah, more pressure, more expectation, more anticipation. And Lord, perhaps there are people in the room today who are more than in anticipation. We're in desperation. We need you. We need help. So we pray today in great confidence and hope for a special visitation of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, stand up here. I'll give the blessing. We have to, you have to leave. There's another group coming in. <laughs> As you're going out, tell them, it was really good. You're going to enjoy it so much. Something like that to encourage them. Here's the blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Be at peace, friends, both now and forever. Amen. Have a good day.